0: Let me preach for a little bit. I, I know we got some things with with uh, with Father's Day and some kids and whatnot. So let me see how far we get today. We we don't need to maybe necessarily even get through this whole sermon. Maybe we'll we'll go a little slower this morning and, and see where we get. Um, I, let's let's start here by kind of differentiating between uh, what I would say is a miracle, and then also in the Bible you have something called signs. So if you start with the miracle, right? The the Greek word here would be dynamis. In the Bible, Jesus isn't the only one to do miracles. Humans can do miracles as well. And you can probably think about that and and think, yeah, that that humans can do miracles. Now, this was fascinating for me to think about because most of the commentators were kind of remarking that even Satan has some sort of power to do miracles. And at first that caught me off guard. And I was like, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have that power. But then the examples that they were given, and as you kind of think about this in the scriptures you're like well there is something behind that um one of the one of the examples the magicians of egypt so when moses goes to pharaoh and says let my people go right and then uh pharaoh's like no and then moses says well here watch me watch me turn my my staff into a snake and then pharaoh calls his magicians and he they kind of they kind of are matching miracle for miracle um, you have this this fortune-telling girl, this this girl who's demon-possessed in Acts 16. You have in, in Revelation false, false prophets doing miracles. Uh, Jesus kind of quotes this in Matthew 20, 24, 24, where he says, in the last day, false prophets will do miracles. And again, the commentators kind of point, it's not by the power of the spirit or by the power of Jesus that they're doing these miracles, but that there is some sort of other satanic or demonic power that is at work in in these miracles and again this kind of pushes us probably into some places that we're we're not very comfortable about talking or thinking about um we, this is not something that we think often about and sometimes we think about that well that was just way back then and magic and superstition and all that sort of stuff um, but there is there is something to be said about this and and i would probably have to defer to Maybe somebody who has a little bit more knowledge and experience. But this is, again, you can start at the very base level, which is a miracle, right? And again, you can think about not only in the Bible, Jesus isn't the only one to do miracles. Obviously, Moses does it. Elijah does it. Uh, Peter and Paul do it. Um, uh, Peter and John do it at the very beginning of Acts. There's all these people doing miracles throughout the Bible. So you start there. Now, the next kind of level would be a sign, Right? And again, the Greek word here is simian. And, and I would say that, that like a sign is almost a step higher than a miracle, right? A sign would often be used as a confirmation. It would be a like a flashing of your badge to authenticate who you are and who you are working on behalf of, right? So Moses would do signs, right? You can think about the ten plagues in Egypt, right? Moses is flashing his badge saying, I am operating here on authority on the power of Yahweh, right Elijah when he calls down the fire from heaven again, a sign in which he says, I am operating here on the power of yahweh so I, I don't know if there's if there's like a hard line in between a sign and a miracle because I think that as you as you do a miracle, if, especially if you're doing it in the name of God, I think that that kind of that kind of Blends into a sign, right? But but I don't think that all all signs are. are you know, I, I think that all signs, if you're doing a sign, would be a miracle. I don't think that all miracles are necessarily signs. Um, and again, I think that there's some gray space in there. And I did my best to study it. And, and I'll be honest, at some point too, I'm I'm not 100% clear on on the differentiation between the two. But this is probably the best way that I could. I could uh, differentiate between the two. Again, a sign is almost kind of a step higher, right? It's like that flashing of your badge. It's to authenticate uh, who you are. Now, in, in the Gospels, there was two narratives that came out to me as I, was, as I was thinking about Jesus doing signs. And the question is, why did Jesus do signs? And I'm going to answer the reverse when Jesus is asked to do a sign and he says, I'm not going to do a sign. So there's, this, there's these two passages in the Bible and I think I forgot to put out Bibles and notepads this morning as I'm looking around. Oh, you got one. Okay, Johnny's got one. We're good. Um, I got this. Damon, you came in here this morning and we were just working away. And I just, Damon's got his Bible. He's got his words. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Well, I'll read, the, I'll read the, these passages. I, I usually have the Bibles out. But if you want to look it up on your phone, I know we all got our phones around and, and some sort of Bible app there if you want to look it up. The first one would be in Matthew 12. There's these two passages, um, and it's in 38 through 40. So, Matthew 12, 38, and I'm just going to, there's kind of some some longer text to this, which we don't have time to get into this morning. Um Matthew 12, 38, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to him and said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, right? I think the Bible that I was reading from home, the the NIV translation said, we want to see a miraculous sign. Does anybody have one that says a miraculous sign or any any other translation like that? We want to see like a, a sign. We want to see a miracle from you. And then Jesus answered, a a wicked, a ridiculous, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? So Jesus kind of referencing his resurrection. Now, this first time that the Pharisees and the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say Teacher, do, do a sign for us, right? At this point, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are probably more convinced that Jesus is operating on the power of Satan than of Yahweh, right? Than of God. Because it's just a few verses before, and, and, and maybe you can see this in your Bible or, or on your app with, with the little, head, the little um, headlines where it says, Jesus and Beelzebub, right? Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And then what's the Pharisees and the religious leader's response? Jesus is possessed by Satan. It's by the power of Satan that he's doing these miracles, that he's performing these signs. Uh, I had a little little text conversation with my mentor and you guys know I I reference him often and I've I've just kind of copied and pasted a couple of our our back and forths, actually mainly more him because he's far, far more brilliant than me. But he, he was talking about The Pharisees coming to Jesus asking for a sign, and we were having some conversation, and he put it like this. I thought this was really insightful when I think about why Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign, right? He said it like this. He said, they, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, want to be able to order him to produce like this super miracle, like Jesus, remember we just talked about Jesus doing all those healings, those miracles in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. There's those 10 miracles, those those 10 healings. And, and, and is that kind of a, a reference to, to the 10 plagues of Moses? Is Matthew now kind of showing these 10 healings in, in Matthew 8 and 9 or these 10 you know miracles? So they come to him and they say, and then he just heals this demon-possessed man just a few verses earlier. The Pharisees want to be able to order him to produce a super miracle at their demand. In order to satisfy their criteria, which sets them in authority over him, right? Not only do they tell him to do something uh, like Satan earlier at his temptation, right? Like, go do this, Jesus, go do that. And Satan does the same thing. Jesus, produce the st- uh, make the stones bread. Jesus, jump off the temple. Jesus, do this, right? So not only... Uh, they tell them to do something. They also would like to stand as the ones to assess and judge its veracity. Jesus refuses. All he gives them is the same sign Jonah gave. That is none, except a pronouncement of their coming judgment, right? So the Pharisees in, in Matthew 12, again, this first kind of go around with Jesus, Jesus do this super miracle, do this sign. They, they do this in a way of saying, you know we are going to be the ones who have authority over you, and we will judge your ministry and If we think that this uh, miracle, this sign, this wonder is 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 real, has any sort of um, legitimacy, we will be the one who authorizes it right um, again a, a sign it was flashing your badge right it was saying, "I am the one who has authority here I am authenticating myself." Right? But now the Pharisees are going to come and say, actually, we are the authority over your authority. And if we appreciate your, what your miracle, your sign is, then we'll let you keep going on. But again, at this point, they think that he's more Satan than he is the Son of God. So that's the first time. Now, it's fascinating because just a couple chapters later in Matthew 16, um, verses 1 through 4, they come again. Right? So in Matthew 16, and again, if you want to turn there, we're going to read those first four verses. And this happens again in Mark, or the kind of parallel text is in Mark 8, 11 through 13. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Remember that little, that little phrase right there. It's kind of the key phrase, a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus replies here, he he replies, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Again, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of uh, of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. So twice in Matthew, within just a few chapters, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they come to Jesus and they're demanding a sign. Now, again, they're going to demand a different kind of sign this time, and I want to go through this a little bit. Um, What you have to look at with this one in Matthew 16 is you have to look at the preceding text, which is what's happening right here. So in Matthew 15, the end of Matthew 15, right? 29 through 39, Jesus does something. He, and Elise, you, you reference this, um, but I don't know if you went into the, to the feeding. I know you mentioned the, the 5,000 in John, right? At this stage, right here, Jesus is feeding the 4,000, right? So, Matthew 15, 29 through 39, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Then, Matthew 16, 1 through 4, they ask for a sign, they demand a sign from heaven, right? In Mark 8, verses 1 through 10, again, Jesus is feeding the 4,000. Right, And then 11 through 13, they come and they demand a sign, and Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Um, remember, when we think about these feeding narratives, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, right, there are these two different narratives in the Bible. The first one, um, the location that we learn from, from Luke's account, this feeding of the 5,000, happens in this small fishing village kind of up into the north called, um, called Bethsaida. It's the hometown of Andrew, Philip, Peter, right? It's a small fishing village kind of up here where where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The second one happens in this city called the Decapolis down here, okay? Or this region called the Decapolis. Um, And the Decapolis, for for those, and I know we've we've talked a little bit about this kind of here and there, um, the Decapolis, where you learn this in Joshua three, if you got to go kind of go back into, into the Old Testament Joshua, seven groups: Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergeshites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Right, seven groups. Now, why they named the the, the seven is is decapolis, which kind of deca is like a ten. I don't I don't quite know the the math. I know math can be difficult, but there's these seven groups when the Israelites go into the Promised Land, right? And Joshua's leading them into the promised land um, after their after their sojourn through the desert for 40 years. And they cross over the Jordan River and they go into the promised land. These are the seven groups that are driven out, right? They go in and they drive out the Canaanites. They drive out the Hittites, the Hivites, the per- Perizzites. And then these, these groups, these seven, end up kind of moving out to the other side of the Jordan River. They, they form their kind of village, tribe, area, region out here. And it's called the Decapolis. Now, it was interesting. I was looking at this because I know I taught this not too long ago. Um, and I taught this March 15th, 2020. It was the last sermon we had in here before we went into lockdown. Um, so Jesus does this this feeding. Now, uh, this is really important. And again, I, I know I'm kind of stuck here for a little bit. And you're like, kind of move on, Eric. So here's why this is so important. Again, look at both side by side. And again, we've, we've gone over this. 5,000, uh, At least you just mentioned this, 12 leftover baskets. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life for the 12 tribes, for Israel. I am the new manna for Yahweh's people. Again, in this Jewish region, the home of Andrew, Philip, Peter, all his disciples, he's up in this Jewish region. There's these 12 leftover baskets. I am more than enough for Israel, right? Now, the 4,000 happens in this region of the Decapolis. Seven leftover baskets. Jesus declares, I'm the bread of life for the Gentiles, the pagans. Once conquered and exiled, now healed and fed by the words and actions of the Messiah. Right? Again, this passage of the 4,000 is the one that um, precedes this Pharisee's coming Asking for the signs and wonders, so keep this keep this in mind for a second. Um, when you think about this phrase, "A sign from heaven right a sign from heaven does not refer to the author of the sign. all signs were from God right it's a It's a bit of a redundant phrase. One of the commentators that I was reading um, just had this really insight this great insight that helped me understand this. his name was Jeff Gibson. And he said it like this. He said, a sign from heaven. Again, this phrase that's used here by by Matthew and by Mark is an apocalyptic phenomena which embody or signal, and I put green for good and red for bad, right? The onset of aid and comfort for God's elect and or the wrath that God was expected to let loose on his enemies and those who threaten his people, Right? So um, signs were, to kind of to paraphrase this, this quote, right? Signs were, God, give us aid and blessing and comfort and help. God, give us a mighty deed of deliverance that Yahweh was working on our behalf, right? Or it could be, God, give them, right, the pagans, the outsiders, the Gentiles, wrath, punishment, destruction, defeat, death, right? So it was it was kind of this 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 had this dual this dual purpose. Now hopefully, as you guys are sitting here, you're starting to kind of connect the the, the, the two narratives that we're talking about here: the sign from heaven and the sign that Jesus had just done, right? Because what Jesus did in, in Matthew 15, in Mark 8 when he feeds the 4,000, when he's in pagan and Gentile land and he's, he's feeding them, is Jesus, he, he turns this whole thing upside down, right? Because Jesus in pagan nation, in, in the nation of the Decapolis, of those who were driven out, of those who were, were known to be the worst of the worst, Jesus is giving them aid, blessing, comfort, That's the point. It's supposed to be upside down. (laughs) Thank you, my girl. Um, Help, a mighty deed of deliverance, right? That that Jesus is working on their behalf. And then what's he giving to to them, to the insiders, to those who are supposed to know? He's saying, you are the ones that are going to receive the judgment, the punishment, the destruction, the defeat. Dave Garland kind of phrases it like this. He says, ironically, this request, Jesus, give us a sign from heaven, comes after the miraculous feeding, a miracle that pointed to blessing, not destruction of Gentiles. Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees a sign from heaven. I like how he phrased this, because God has sent him, God has sent Jesus to give his life on the cross for all humanity, not to smash the enemies of Israel, or to give the nation political mastery of the world. He, he continues on. One, one more part in a different section. He says, Their's, The religious leaders is a messiah of empty dreams who will throw out the tyrants of the world and install themselves as new tyrants. They want Jesus to give them proof of what they want to be true. Now, this little sentence or these two sentences right here, I think just so deeply apply to my life, to American Christianity, and not just to, to bag on American Christianity, to just Christianity as a large. As as people who follow these messiahs of empty dreams, right? To have Jesus be what we want in our heart to be true, right? So we we, we create these kind of paper messiahs, right? These these false gods, this idolatry. So again, Jesus goes into the pagan, to the Gentile land. He does this sign, this sign from heaven, which was to give them blessing and aid and comfort. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they come say, give us a sign, right? And they want Jesus to either bring the destruction, the smashing, the defeat, the punishment of the pagans, and validate them in some sort of way, the blessing, the, the goodness, or right that's what, that's what they're asking for. And that's why Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm here for. So Jesus then responds. He closes this by with, with a metaphor, a criticism, and a narrative, um, all kind in of those, in those last couple verses of, of, of Matthew. Um, he says, when the evening comes, you will say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. Now, you've probably heard this in, in the old sailors. How does it go? Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Anybody ever heard that one? Oh, man, I'm teaching you guys. A couple a couple folks. Anyone over here ever heard? Yeah. No? Okay, I saw, I, thought that, I thought that was like kind of... Yeah, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. There you go. If you didn't learn anything else, you learned that Elise rode in a flying car that she almost died in, and you learned a new sailing slogan. Um, so he, he, re, he replies with this this metaphor, and it was helpful for me to invert this metaphor to think of, of Jesus speaking to a weatherman, right? Speaking to good old, I was going to show like a picture of Dallas or, or or Fritz Coleman who just recently retired or whatever, right? Jesus, you know, he, he speaks to a weatherman. And imagine Jesus saying to a weatherman, he says, wow, Dallas rains, you are so in tune with the spiritual awakening that's happening in, in America. You, you're, you can see how churches are getting together. They're coming together. They're worshiping. You know who the pastors are, who are leading people and, and doing it with humility and grace. You know where the spirit is moving. Dallas, you have such this attunement of the, of the spiritual nature of what's going on in this country. But Dallas, you can't even read a Doppler screen. Like you couldn't stick your hand out the door and tell us if it's cold or it's hot. You don't even know how to read a thermometer, right? And when you invert the metaphor, right, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who were supposed to be the experts in studying and knowing what Yahweh was doing and to see miracles happen and the feedings and the signs and the kingdom announcements, they were totally ignorant of what Jesus was doing. Maybe even worse, they were intentionally defiant and had weaponized his healings against him, right? They had said, oh, your healings, the signs and things that you're doing, uh, no, 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 you you're working by the power of Satan. That's why you're doing these things, right? So not only were they ignorant of, of the signs and the miracles and the wonders that Jesus was, was doing, but they, they had weaponized those things back against him. Um, I, I would say this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they, they had this, they had the Bible and the religious traditions and the rituals, and they had this really solidly in one hand, but they didn't have the spirit of God in the other hand, right? The spirit who was supposed to be teaching them and showing them and awakening them. And here's Jesus walking alongside them, and And they're, they're so consumed with just their traditions and their rituals and their Torah and their study that they couldn't even see what Jesus was doing in this world. Um, this was This was convicting for me too, because as I was thinking about this, right i 'm trying to think how, how to say this i 'll put this up here we 'll start here I and I would say we, as we sit here in this congregation and I say we as we kind of think a lot about this stuff, think that we can dictate to God the conditions under which we will. Or will not accept him as Lord um, and and what I mean by that is the Pharisees had the conditions right they had the criteria they had the, the knowledge under which they would or would not accept Jesus. As Lord, And we do the exact same thing to him. What was really convicting for me was when we did parables a couple of weeks ago and we read the parable about the net. And Jesus says in the parable about the net, I'm going to throw my net into the sea and I'm going to pull it up. And there's going to be some good fish and there's going to be some bad fish. And then he, he says, that's what it's going to be like at the end of the judgment, when the judgment of all things, right? He's going to welcome the good fish in and that there are some bad fish that are going to go into, um, uh, how does he say it in um, Matthew 13? He says, He says um, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I remember reading that thinking like, ooh, I don't like that. Right? Ooh, that's kind of like Jesus, can't you just love and accept everybody? I mean, surely we're not all that bad. Come on, like relax a little bit. And I remember reading that parable, thinking to myself, man, I I want to I want to set the criteria for which I'll believe and trust and put Jesus as Lord. And that was really humbling. Again, the Bible continues to humble us and say, It's not up to you, Eric. It's not up to the criteria that I determine for Jesus to be Lord. And 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 the boxes that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, I know I'm getting excited too, brother. I was coming to the end of the sermon right here. Hang on. Um, that we think that we can determine this, right? That, whoa, well, I, know, I know Jesus. I'll tell you how to do it. It's the same thing the Pharisees did. Jesus, tell, oh, give me a sign. Do this for me, right? And, and we, we can't do that. Again, um, I wanted to say that, um, it's, again, Jesus humbles us, right? Jesus humbles us. Uh, the criticism, right? Jesus calls them wicked and adulterous. Now, adulterous doesn't mean that Jesus is looking at all these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders and saying, man, I, I know you guys, you guys are having a lot of you know, affairs. You're out there sleeping with a lot of women, right? The, their adultery had been unfaithfulness to the covenant established by Yahweh with Abraham, right? All the way back in Genesis, Yahweh establishes his covenant and says, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And and, and, Jesus, and Jesus says, you're adulterous, you're, you're having an affair on God. And when I thought about this, when I was thinking about adultery for a second, as I was like, okay, well, I use that metaphor. Why use adultery? Why not like murderous or, or thieves? Why adultery? Because what adultery is at, its, at, at one level is to look at your spouse and say, you're not good enough, right? To convince yourself that, whatever, that something in your spouse isn't good enough. They're not good enough sexually. They're not good enough um, relationally. They're not good enough emotionally. And it's really to look at your spouse and say, yeah, you're not good enough, right? The fidelity of the relationship has been found wanting. We've, we have this together, but as I've gotten to know you and as we've grown closer and as we share this, this covenant relationship, now I look at you and I say, you're not good enough. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying to Jesus. You're not good enough, right? And they want Jesus to simply just give them what they want. And, and again, at some level, how often do we do this to Jesus, right? Jesus, you're just not good enough. You're not fast enough. You're not quick enough. You don't answer enough of my prayers, and we become frustrated and we become discontent and we become disillusioned, despair sets in and then we just drift away. Jesus, you're just not good enough. And it's again, exactly what the Pharisees did to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, you are in a wicked and an adulterous generation because you have given up on the covenant established all the way back with to Abraham with Yahweh. The last thing that Jesus does is then, if that wasn't enough, um, he drops the Jonah narrative, right? And in the Jonah narrative, um, again, Jonah walking into a pagan Nineveh and leading the people of Yahweh, right? And you remember what happens at the end of that narrative, right? Jonah, again, the, the fish, the boat, the, the, he walks into Nineveh. The people repent. Sackcloth and ashes. There they are. God, we're sorry. We repent. Jonah's furious at this. He's angry. He's upset. And he goes and sits under a tree angrily. And he, does he say that he wants to die? Is he like, I'd rather die than watch the people repent, right? Is that what he says at the end of the, the, the Jonah narrative? And then you think about Jesus again giving the sign. He's referencing Jonah. Because Jesus knows that in some senses, he's going to kind of hang from a tree, right? He is going to endure the cross Jesus isn't angrily sitting under a tree, defiant against his will, sad that people are repenting. Jesus is joyfully hanging from the tree, from the cross, scorning its shame for you and for I. So, why did Jesus do signs and wonders? I don't know why he did signs and wonders, but I do know why he did do signs and wonders, right? Why he says no to some, some people. And... Uh, I think that should be enough for the morning. Shall we do a little discussion? I think there's a lot in there to to, to break down. I hope that wasn't too much too fast. Uh, let me go. I was going the wrong way. Yeah, I guess you know that that first phrase when when the Pharisees want the sign, the Pharisees and Sadducees want the sign from heaven. Give us the the blessing, the the benefit, the the goodness. The, Uh, And then the them, the the wrath, the destruction, the defeat. Uh, Who is the us in the church? Who is the them? And then maybe kind of a follow-up, like, well, now what do we do with that once we, you know, identify those groups? Uh, Was there something that Elise shared that stood out to you and why? Um, If you just kind of wanted to touch on something that Elise had had talked about. Uh, What is one way that you put Jesus in a box that you kind of, that you kind of say, well, Jesus, here's how I need you to behave. Here's what I need you to do. Do this for me, Jesus. In order to satisfy your criteria, that you set yourself an authority over him. Uh, Have you ever had a time in your life when you felt that Jesus wasn't good enough? Was there something that you did or was there a moment or somebody shared something to help you move past that issue? So these these questions are definitely more on the deep end this morning. So take a few minutes and, and turn to the person next to you um and discuss those questions maybe something stands out and again the the three p's obviously the praise the pushback the problems things you agreed with things you didn't agree with um maybe suggest some further questions that you had so jump in jump in on those uh and then we'll have a few minutes of discussion after that